faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton, the man of steel. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman. 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 This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Hello, welcome to Superman Forever Radio. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and this is episode two of season two. And I'm actually re-recording this episode on the very day it comes out, which is the reason why it was out late today, uh, for a very important reason. I'm making major changes to the show. I'm not going to bury the lead. First, I'll tell you what is going to change, then I'll tell you why, and give you kind of the justification. First, I will begin covering the new 52-era Superman books with the next episode, which will be due out October 2nd. Uh, What we will be doing is we're going to be looking at Action Comics, Superman, Superboy, and Supergirl. And since Superman figures very heavily into Justice League, we're we're going to be covering that. And since Superboy is very heavily tied to Teen Titans, we'll also be covering that. So we'll be getting full coverage. Now we'll be doing the books all in one fell swoop, one episode a month. So that's six issues in one episode. So basically every other episode. And also on those episodes, we will be looking back at Superman Through the Ages, leaping back ten years at a time to the month we're covering. Uh, this means you know we'll be picking up with November dated uh, books, November 2011, and the number one issues. So we'll look back at November 2001, 1991, 1981, and so on. And Superman the Animated Series, that'll continue just as it has been, except uh, the two or three parters, they'll be covered as a single unit. Secondly, the alternate episodes, the, we'll be looking at the new Earth era still. Now, except we're not going to be doing it issue by issue, month by month but by storyline, and we'll we'll explore the mythology with a focus on a topic pulled from those issues themselves, kind of what you've known, and of course on the Superman the Animated Series, so that'll be on every episode till we wrap that up. So that's the new format. Here's why. I know this is the umpteenth change in under a year. Issue Issue by issue coverage has been the standard, and I really enjoy it. I really enjoyed it on Pad Smash. I enjoyed it on Xavier's podcast, uh, Captain America. It's kind of where that came in. Uh, discovering the different eras, have, and I'm, I've really been enjoying that. Um, but this era that we're covering also, it's been plagued by scheduling issues. And I have to say, with almost every rev- review, my biggest complaint has been, well, the stories are written for the trade. And I want to enjoy doing this podcast, and I haven't for a while. So this week, with my co-host over at Xavier's podcast for Gifted Youngsters, John M. Wilson, was and he's also my co-host on Mighty Shield, Captain America podcast, he was talking about podcasts covering an era that they're not necessarily interested in. And I made a joke that if podcasters quit because they didn't like the era, this show wouldn't exist. And so I'm kind of wanting to rectify that. I also want to look at Superman as a whole, uh, not just a five-year period of time, or even just what's out now. And I do want to clarify, I know what will probably be the first thought, and I might get angry emails, I'm not stepping on any podcaster's toes, because the, my look back is not going to be anywhere near as comprehensive or as deep as my compadres are on the other podcasts that cover them. It doesn't supplant that at all, um, not by a long shot. But 
this is a fun look back. And it's kind of inspired by the retroactive concept uh, DC recently put out. And I'm actually going to be talking about that towards the end of the episode. And I also want to get the show back to covering news in the world of Superman, so that'll be included, uh, more current topics. In short, really the show, on at least on this side of the mic, was becoming stagnant. I wasn't enjoying it, and this is a way for for me to continue covering what I've been looking at, as well as invigorate it for its second season. As a result, this episode got cut up a little. It was in the can, it was ready to go, all was well. And then I'm really, that just bothered me, and I, I'm like, what can I do to get myself back in? So I re- got back out, cut up this episode, and I removed the Action Comics issue uh, and the Legion Overview and Superman Confidential. Those are all mid-storyline. What we will do is we're going to wrap that up, both those and the Apocalypse Story and Superman Confidential, along with Last Sun and Camelot Falls, in Episode 4 of this season, which is due out October 16th. And that'll clear out some of the loose ends. And then on October 30th, I celebrate one year of this show with all of the number two issues. You get it? We're entering into year two, number two issues. And as I mentioned, I mean, I know this is the umpteenth change to the format in under a year, and most of my other shows aren't changing. I'm happy with them. But this is the format until the end of season two. Now, season three is going to be different, because New Krypton's its own beast, completely different type of coverage. We're going to deal with that when we get there. But this is how I keep myself engaged with this show. Um, Superman is my favorite character in all of literature, and he should never feel like a chore to me. Ever. And that's what he was becoming, just because the, the way the era was is staggered out. So season two, we're going to, the road to New Krypton is going to continue, just like I said in the promo. It's just going to be a little bit more clumped, and we get the modern era as well. That way, we're part of the... the show is at least part of something exciting. And to even things out, I mean, we still have a lot of things to cover. Wrapping uh, in this episode, um, we still have to wrap up the third Kryptonian in Superman, and the actual other Apocalypse story in Superman Batman 42, and then we have a one-off in Superman Batman number 43. We wrap up the first season of Superman the Animated Series... And then, of course, I'm going to talk about the retroactive books. It's it's going to be an exciting episode, and there's a special announcement that is not by me that will be coming at the end of this episode. So, stay with me. Let's kick in. Let's get right into it with Superman number 670. Now, Superman 670, of course, was cover dated January 2008, but actually went on sale November 7th, 2007. This is the third Kryptonian finale, The Stand. Written by Kurt Busiek, penciled by Rick Leonardi, inked by Daniel Green, lettered by Richard Starkings, colored by Alex Sinclair, covered by Jesus Moreno, edited by Matt Idelson, with associate editor Nachi Castro, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And the issue has a prologue, which takes us to Pelham Square Market in the Queensland Park area, area of Metropolis, where a couple of guys are checking out a blonde who fills out her pants really well, their words, not mine. And the guys approach the girl, who has heard every word they've said, and starts to tell them off, but is interrupted by laser fire from a pair of Amalax pirates rising on... They're flying on gliders that are clearly Green Goblin-inspired from the 616. And they call for the girl to surrender, and she will receive a swift death. Well, the blonde girl is, of course, our own Kara of Krypton Supergirl, and she just isn't feeling that swift death thing and flies into action with her full costume on. 
surprising the guys, by the way. And we cut to Manhattan, where Power Girl has just beaten up Vulcan, Son of Fire, and she too gets attacked by pirates on gliders. This batch actually looks more like the Knights of Wonder Gore. So I don't know if we're going into the 616 mixture here. I don't know exactly what's happening with these designs. But as you'll see at my notes on this issue, I have some fe strong feelings on it. So Peach also flies into the fight. In Baker Line, a friend of Jimmy Olsen's looks at a smoldering crater and decides exactly how she's going to tell Jimmy that his dog, which she was walking, got vaporized by aliens. Of course, Jimmy Olsen's dog is actually Crypto, the super dog, and he's already airbound, heading for the pirates that are terrified that he will disembowel them. And after these short vignettes, we are back in Northern California, where we left off last issue. Superman and Karsta Worrell are standing in her house, where Amalek and his crew have just dropped in by way of the hole in Karsta's roof, a hole they made. Superman is ready to rumble with Amalek, but Karsta tells Superman he's on his own. Superman led him here, and Superman could get killed while she makes a run for it. Amalek hits Superman with a red sun explosive, which means the Man of Steel's strength is lowered. Then charts, charts, nice, starts shooting at Superman with synthetic kryptonite bolts and gets soups in the leg. Superman uses his telescopic vision to check on Supergirl and Power Girl, who are faring pretty well against the pirates, but the intent of Amalek is pretty clear. Kill Kryptonians. Superman also checks in on Batman, who has been monitoring everything through the communicator in Superman's belt. Batman is already on the move. Superman also breaks for open sky, but pauses to use his heat vision, bounced off of satellites and buildings to warn Lois and Christopher in Metropolis with some writing burned into the condo wall. I'm glad the Kents aren't renters, or that would basically destroy their security deposit. Yes, I do think about these things. Chris asks Lois if he should take off his Red Sun watch and go help his adopted father. Man, am I glad they decided to keep Christopher in the picture. What a great family dynamic. Uh, just a quick reminder, yes, we are going to be wrapping up the last Son of Camelot Falls storyline, so I want you to earmark that exact comment right there. And we'll have a, you know, not next episode, episode after that. Now, back to the action. Though Superman flies away, he gets hit with some vibro cannons. I don't know what that does, but it sounds kind of gross. Karsta gets into her escape cachet, which, are, which is two barbell-shaped rockets, or barrels, I can't tell exactly what they are, with everything she needs. As she flies out, she pauses for a moment and uh, kind of thinks about helping her fellow Kryptonians, but she changes her mind and heads off into space. Superman draws his pursuers to his Amazon jungle fortress, which is still in a state of disrepair. Superman is downed there, but is thankful that nobody is around to get hurt in the crossfire. Amalek slaps a red sun helmet on Superman, and the helmet actually uses connects to a machine that Amalek uses to dig through Superman's memories. Superman fights the mental digging to the point where Superman actually reverses the flow and starts poking around in Amalek's memory. Superman sees Amalek's home planet, invaded by Kryptonians, and the inhabitants of Amalek's planet rebelled, which was slapped down by Admiral Druzad when he and his fleet wiped everybody off the planet. Now, Amalek himself had been flying around in space at the time and returned to see everyone on the planet dead. A red mist formed around him and turned into the souls of the murdered, and apparently they entered Amalek like some sort of possession, 
And this is when Amalek swears that all Kryptonians will pay. Amalek manages to push Superman out, just in time for Supergirl, Power Girl, and Crypto to show up to aid the Man of Steel. Now that Superman has seen Amalek's motivation, he tries to reason with the space pirate, but Amalek's just not going to have it. Before the fisticuffs begin, one of Amalek's soldiers informs him that they have found another fortress, and that fortress has the city of Kandor. Amalek leaves Superman... Amalek leaves the Superman squad, pardon me, to be killed by his cronies, but it takes off for the Arctic Fortress, the one we know. In space, Karsta uncovers her ship, but can't resist one look back at the planet she lived on for so long. She spots Amalek's ship and follows the path of the ship's communications on Earth, which would lead her to the Fortress of Solitude, where Batman has apparently crashed his Batwing right in front of the entrance and snags some Kryptonian armor and is waiting for him for Amalak to show up. We get dual fights at the fortress is <laughs> at both fortresses, which are really hard to properly synopsize. Suffice it to say that Superman, Supergirl, and Power Girl are triumphant, Batman not as much. Amalak destroys Bruce's armor, which looks like something out of the nineties cartoon Exo Squad, which starred Robbie Benson, who was the voice of Beast in Beauty and the Beast. Anyway, and escape, he escapes to the fortress where Amalek faces a dinosaur-like creature while Batman activates some Superman robots to fend off Amalek. Batman even cracks out the Black Mercy. Remember the flower from the Alan Moore story for the man who has everything? It puts its victim into a coma while they dream of their ideal life. Amalek fries the plant and starts for the Dark Knight just as the supergroup crashes into the fortress and Batman tells them to forget about him, Amalek has found Kandor. Amalek looks closely at the Bottle City, and as Superman enters the fortress chamber, says that he's been duped. This is not Kandor. This is an imitation. Before Superman can stop him, Amalek throws the bottle down, bursting it and causing Kandor to implode. So everyone piles on Amalek, but he still uses his strength imbued to him from an entire civilization of vengeful spirits to bring Superman to his knees after taking out the girls and the dog. Things are bad, as Batman radios a message to the Pig Iron Watch, which Christopher apparently hears, because he shows up at the fortress just in time to crack Amalek on the back of the head, and he tells the pirate not to hurt his friends. Amalek recognizes that Christopher is a descendant of Druzod, which puts Chris at the top of Amalek's hit list. Seeing his son in danger flips the Superman's trigger, and he starts going at Amalek like a spider monkey forcing Amalek toward an atomic cauldron. But Superman is in trouble, as Amalek is overpowering the Man of Steel again, hitting him with some red sun energy. Once again, conveniently, just in time, Karsta shows up with a pair of red sun gren- pardon me, yellow sun grenades, which she detonates, giving every Kryptonian in the room a huge power burst, which they use to beat Amalek in tandem, and put him out. And the day is saved! Supergirl and Power Girl, afterward, are fixing Batman's Batwing, while Superman sits perfectly clear. Pardon me, makes it perfectly clear to Batman that even though the desperate situation called for it, if Batman ever sends Clark's foster son into battle again, there'll be trouble. Man, I really like the fact that Christopher gets to stick around after Last Son. Supergirl mentions that she recently had a vision of the future and Karsta was in it. Then it must be true. New Krypton, Brainiac, her parents. Could they all be coming? Karsta repents for her behavior and says that she will turn herself in, along with Amalek, and face the consequences. 
And with that, the third Kryptonian takes off for space, finally able to stop running. So that happened. That issue happened. Let's start on page three, when Power Girl shows up. Some of you may wonder exactly what makes Power Girl a Kryptonian. Is she Atlantean or something? That's what I. That's what they were going with for a while. To properly jump into who she is, we have to open ourselves up to the multiverse and to Earth 2, where the chronology starts with the Golden Age and progresses from there. Power Girl resided in that reality, appearing for the first time in 1976 with All-Star Comics number 58. Here, she's the analog to Supergirl. She was Kara Zor-El, note, spelled with only the letter L, no E-L. Uh, since we're pulling from that Golden Age time, that was the proper spelling of Kal-El, which was also one L. Now, her origin is actually slightly different from more of the Supergirl origins that we see. This Karsta was sent away in a rocket at the same time as Kal-El, but the technology for her ship was a little different from Superman's, and it took her longer to get to Earth. Now, her ship was a Simbo ship, which sounds gross. It actually had some virtual reality functions. So Kara actually had to live, actually lived a sort of fake life experience. So she actually had some functionality. She, she arrived as a teenager, uh, kind of armed with a, at least a personality and some sort of knowledge. And kind of like the post-Infinite Crisis Kara. And with those fake life experiences, she actually had some grip on her powers, and she's actually pretty cocky. Now, she lived with the married Clark Kent and Lois Lane, operating in secret for a long time, kind of like our Kara from Silver Age, before coming to the age of the Justice Society of America and joining the team with her cousin's endorsement, allowing Superman to go into semi-retirement. Kara eventually wanted a secret identity, so she created the persona of Karen Starr and used the Amazonian Purple Ray to give Karen knowledge in computer science. Boy, that just kind of beats DeVry to death, doesn't it? One blast with the beam and you are certified. I think the Amazonian, the Amazons are kind of missing out on a, on a nice business opportunity there, but that's just me. This is how I think. Now here's where it gets confusing. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, Earth 2 went bye-bye, and so did that version of Power Girl. The edict at DC with the relaunch was that Superman should be the only Kryptonian. So Kara became the granddaddy or granddaughter of our good buddy, the Atlantean sorcerer Arion, of course, who we've seen in uh, Camelot Falls. She still used the secret identity of Karen Starr and ran a software company called Starware and worked as a superhero with the Justice League Europe, which was one of the greatest runs. She has one of the greatest cats, that's all I'm going to say. If you haven't read it, don't worry about it. If you've read it, you know you're probably giggling right now. And when the Earth 2 Superman and Lois came out of their paradise dimension, they revealed to her her true heritage. She was the original Kara, exiled to Earth Prime when Earth 2 ended. And with the multiverse back into play, Power Girl and Supergirl can actually coexist. So we have a Kryptonian Power Girl, but she isn't straight up Kryptonian, since her Krypton is the Earth 2 Krypton. And which brings us to page 4 of the book that we're actually covering, where Crypto's walker is looking at the smoldering crater, trying to figure out what to tell Jimmy. And Crypto being the most terrifying Kryptonian to the pirates. I love it. I love it. I like it when Crypto tears stuff up because he's simply awesome. And too often in this era, you see the dog, including in this issue, you see, you see Crypto just getting slapped around, which is insulting. Crypto's an important character. Crypto is powerful. 
Uh, and too too often there you, you're getting these people just slapping him around. And he doesn't do anything. But that we're going to rectify that in an upcoming storyline. Now, page seven brings us the cowardly Karsta. You know, she actually reminds me of the bear from Toy Story three. That one moment, and this may need a spoiler warning if you haven't seen Toy Story three. Uh, go ahead and skip about uh, forty five seconds ahead. But when you think the bear is redeemed and he's going to help them and basically gives them a fuzzy middle finger, oh, it still gets me right in the gut. And my notes jump all the way to page 13 after this, when Superman banks his heat vision off of the satellite, back down to Earth, off of a balcony, to burn a message into the wall of 1938 Sullivan, where, and I want to note this, Lois has her short hair that we've been seeing through Camelot Falls. If Superman is able to move his eyes in such a fashion and bank it all, you know, Cyclops style, why doesn't the force of that knock the satellite off course? I can understand that maybe the metal doesn't melt. Okay, I'll give you that. But the the pressure would at least move the satellite, I would think. I'm no physics major, but that's my thoughts. Here's another thing that still bugs me. The Amazon Fortress. On page 17, I never liked it. But that's not my point. I think I mentioned this in Up, Up, and Away at the very end. But Superman talks about the Arctic Fortress as if it's brand new. But this Amazonian Fortress existing, even mentioned there, implies that For Tomorrow Happen. Because Superman created the Amazonian Fortress after the Russian General Zod destroyed his original fortress. Which causes a lot of issues with General Zod. But it also means that the Crystalline Arctic Fortress is the fourth fortress. After the Bernera Mountain Fortress, the Tesseract Fortress, and this Amazon Fortress. It makes my head hurt, because basically Superman only refers to the Amazon Fortress. So, uh, did anyone else... I don't know, it hurts my head. I'm not even going to get into that. If someone can explain the fortress situation, that'd be great. And did anyone else think of the movie Serenity? If you're reading along on pages 20 and 21. This whole planet gets killed, just like Miranda, and Amalek is essentially the Reavers all rolled into one person. And that kind of underscores my biggest gripe from this issue. Amalek is a big bunch of sci-fi character cliches. The original Amalek was a bit more solid and a lot more fun. Kind of. He was a downer, but he was at least something original. I just wonder if Kurt Busiek had writer's block and just set up a sci-fi marathon and decided to make a twisted amalgam of random characters and then think that fans who are usually also sci-fi fans, since Superman is technically within the sci-fi category, he thought we wouldn't notice the scraps. Sorry, I just don't feel it, and I'm just being honest. These were the pages that just knocked me right out of the story, and I never really recovered and got back in. Um, page 27 also left me with questions. A, I made a joke about the Green Goblin glider, but here it's a blatant ripoff. It is very clear. And B, why did Batman crash his Batwing? He knows how to land the thing. And as cool as it is to see Batman in the armor, I'm still scratching my head trying to figure out why the plane is in the snow. I, 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 did Amalek bring it down somehow? I'm not sure. It doesn't even tell me that. And then just to kick me in the face even more, on page 39. Look at page 39. Lois now has longer, chin-length hair, a little bit more full. Did the female Rogaine kick in since page 13? 
And this brings me to another gripe. And I know this is a very negative review. I apologize, but Leonardo is really letting me down. It took me quite a bit to figure out what it was, but this page sealed it. This version of Amalak is annoying and unoriginal. The guest stars, except for Batman, don't contribute anything to the issue. Even Karsta, who made her first appearance and only appearance in this storyline, don't doesn't do anything. To seal the lameness, I realized that Leonardi's art looks like something you would find in an ad for Kool-Aid or NASCAR, where they buy several pages, make a mock comic book, and get licensing ability with some of the DC characters. I just feel like Superman should be meeting Dale Earnhardt Jr. or Maria Sharapova, if that's how you even say it, and saying something trite. And I immediately realized that this issue needs to be rated quarter bit. If you find it and you're curious, make sure it's cheap. Uh, because you're not getting a fully fleshed out story, just an extended fight with a 90s image villain mixed in with watered down, lamed up version of Khan. At least he could have tapped Superman into, like, trapped Superman into the heart of a planet. See, that would have been cool. It's actually time for me to watch Wrath of Khan. I always watch it around the fall. That's just how I roll. I don't know. I've always equated it. But let's move on. That is one book that I wasn't all that happy with. Let's move on to Superman Batman number 42, which wraps up Torment. Tor- uh, this issue was actually also cover dated January of 2008, pardon me, blank, and came out on November 14th of 2007. This is Torment Part 6, release. <laughs> uh, written by Alan Burnett, penciled by Dustin Wynn, inked by Derek Friedoffs, lettered by Randy Major, lettered by Rob Lay, Assistant editor was Adam Schlagman. Editor was Eddie Berganza. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And this was reprinted in the Superman Batman Torment trade paperback. And I think I forgot to mention this on Super, Superman number 670. It was reprinted in the third Kryptonian trade paperback as well. Um, but as far as Superman Batman, we pick up right where we left off last issue. With Superman trapped within the source itself. Speaking to an ethereal version of Highfather. Highfather fills soups in. The source is healing them, but he's a paradox, a living thing in the afterlife. Highfather realizes that the source brought Superman here because his staff has been found by Desaad. Superman tells Highfather that he can stop Desaad if only he could get back to the realm of the living, and Highfather says that's impossible, even as Superman tries to fly as fast as he can to get out. This isn't doing any good in a place where direction has no meaning. After all, while Superman is busting out the supersonic, Highfather has continued to stand next to him and not move. So what's Superman to do? He may be trapped here for all eternity, or he may dissipate a bit by bit across eons. They don't know because the Source has never contained a life force or life form before. And with his exposition done, Highfather returns to the Source, leaving Superman alone to mourn his lost life. Now we catch up with Batman who is still trapped in the realm of the living with a frozen Becca, who he takes to some underground steaming water channels to combat the hypothermia. Batman feels his draw to Becca, which means she is on the mend, and he wraps her in his cape and lets her rest as he ponders why he can't have a real relationship. As Bruce gets a little dramatic, a little bit degrassi, and sad that all of his loves have been a sham, Becca wakes up and approaches him, wrapped in only his cape. They finally kiss and crumple to the ground together, but before that gets too far, Batman feels a vibration rippling in the water, and Batman knows what it is, High Father's staff. 
Elsewhere on the planet, Dasad has managed to open a rift in the Omega Dimension, which will give Darkseid his power back, and then some. Darkseid is grateful, and Dasad rubs it in to a captive Jonathan Crane, before turning the Highfather's staff onto Darkseid, blasting the Dark Lord right across the chest. Darkseid isn't dead because Dasad wants a witness to Dasad taking the power that was Darkseid's. And Dasad begins taking the Omega Force, but didn't realize that when you try to take the Omega Force, you have to see that which all horrors pale into in comparison. This blows Dasad's mind, literally, and now Darkseid can use his crony as a conduit to regain his power. Batman and Becca fly to the building, holding hands, aww, as they prepare for an all-out assault. And I know what you're thinking, this can't go well. We are dealing with a, a powered-up dark side with the, the High Father's staff. Becca is disarmed in seconds, and even though Batman has stealth on his side, using Becca's phase inducer to sneak up on dark side, he only manages to get one good blow in. But that seems to work, since he gets High Father's staff from the evil despot. This opens up a link to the source, which Superman can use to find his way to the, through the wall, the staff acting as a bit of a beacon. Superman bursts through the source wall, and Batman is thrown back in the chamber. The, the staff has now vanished. Darkseid is taunting Becca about how he found another distraction, a human, and why could she never get that reaction from Darkseid? Because you can't get emotions where there aren't any. Darkseid does have death, though, and he's about to bring it down on the two of them when Superman comes flying in and lays some beat down on Darkseid. And he's about to take Darkseid to the Source Wall when Darkseid jumps into the pit that Dasad opened to the Omega Dimension. The day seems to be saved, but the Source Wall starts absorbing the entire planet into the hole that Superman made on his escape. So the trio boom back to Earth with Crane in hand, and Superman asks Crane... Pardon me, takes Crane to the penitentiary, leaving Batman and Becca to make out again. But then, Orion shows up, and floats there, silently staring. Awkward. And Orion takes his wife away, forgiving her, but glaring at Batman. Completely unaware of what happened on the planet, Superman comes back and mentions how lucky Orion is. Batman just grumbles that Clark should go home, Lois is worried about him, and broods off into the night to, to take a cold shower, apparently, and tend to his Batarang collection. In an epilogue, Orion and Becca are on New Genesis, talking about how the entire spectrum of the new gods is out of whack. Orion decides that it's time for him to pay a visit to Apocalypse, and bids his wife goodbye. As he takes off on his astro harness, she watches, and then realize that somebody, realizes that somebody is watching her. She turns to see who it is, and a hand reaches out and blasts Becca, leaving only a flaming tatter of her dress. And we close on the unseen figure, saying, So begins the end. I'm just going to be honest. Um, the first note I made, because sometimes I'll read these issues, and normally I'll have a pen and paper just on the side just to make random notes as I'm compiling a synopsis, just random things here and there, first thing to come to mind, knee-jerk reaction. But my first note here is, man, I'm glad that's over. And that kind of sums up my thoughts on this issue. I, I don't even have page-by-page -page notes. I was just glad to see this be over. Everything wrapped up just as it should and played out predictably right up to the point that, that Becca gets blasted. That's something that ties into Final Crisis in the fact that the new gods are being murdered by somebody. And I'll give you only one hint 
It's somebody we've covered on this show. And this story is maybe the best example of something that was written for the trade. Didio apparently wanted an epic trade. In length, yes, it's epic. In content, not so much. Let me go ahead and sum it up for you. Superman gets possessed by Darkseid and Asad via a modified version of Scarecrow's Fear Compound. Batman pursues and gets into an awkward affair with Orion's wife. Owen Darkseid tries to get his groove back by using High Father's staff to open up the Omega Dimension. I really just want to move on, and I'm going to give this issue a rating of, you know what, I'll call this story as a whole a quarter bin. If you find the trade, a quarter's fine, maybe even a dollar in real world money, but it's just not a necessary read. So let's let's go ahead and move on to our last book, Superman Batman number 43, which is a one-off issue. Uh, this was actually cover dated late January 2008, but came out on November 28, 2007. It is entitled Dark Light. It's written by Dan Abnett, co-written and inked by Andy Lanning, penciled by Mike McCone, also inked by Jonathan Glapion and Rebecca Buckman, lettered by Rob Lay, colored by Jason Wright, edited by Eddie Berganza with assistant editor Adam Schlagman, Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, Batman, created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And the issue jumps right in with the Teen Titans in their classic form appearing in the accelerator chamber of a space station built by Wayne Tech and Star Labs. The station is designed to harness dark matter particles and convert it to clean, renewable energy. And the ship uses a Kryptonian crystal processor. You think you're good with your Intel processor? Wait till you get a Kryptonian crystal processor. It kicks it up about six notches. Beat that, Intel. Uh, anyway, on the control brick, pardon me, control deck of the orbiter, John Henry Irons, who we know as Steel, watches with Bruce Wayne as an accelerator spike causes small explosions through the rings of the ship, and a feedback charge hits a fellow scientist resonating off of the crystal processor. Irons orders an evacuation as the Titans make it to the control deck, and he insists that Bruce gets get out. As Bruce does, slipping into a closet, he opens his dress shirt to reveal the Superman symbol. What? Superman felt that he might be needed more than Bruce Wayne, so he wore a Bruce Wayne disguise. He realizes that somebody has taken control of the Dark Matter and jumps into the fray to help John fight off the Titans, and ponders to himself that only one person has a twisted enough mindset to use the Titans as a threat, and that ain't good. Superman finds that his physical attacks aren't doing much, so he switches to heat vision, which just serves to anger the Titans. And while this fight rages on, a crewman named Linders is moving closer and closer to the Kryptonian power processor until he touches it, and a bolt of energy shoots out into space. Superman discovers that the Titans aren't dark matter at all, but holograms projected from floating orbs. Superman smashes one of the orbs, making Aqualad disappear, and realizes who is behind this. At that moment, in the Fortress of Solitude, the energy bolt shoots back from the crystal processor to the fortress, and it hits. And we learn that this has transported the villain behind the attack, Dr. Light. Light used the, basically used a hologram to disguise himself, and the processor to teleport to the unguarded fortress, so he can use the alien technology to unleash his vengeance on the JLA. There's only one problem. The fortress is far from unguarded. Batman comes from out of nowhere and knocks Dr. Light in the face! Bats deflects Light's, well, that's hard to say, Batman deflects Light's bursts of energy with some chafe grenades. 
Then the concussion grenade puts light on the ground before using the dark matter to envelop light. Back in space, Superman defeats the, the Titan holograms by using the crystal processor itself to intensify his heat vision, leaving only the projectors. Back in the fortress, Batman explains that he siphoned off all of the dark matter into one of the fortress's crystals. Light was apparently vanished, perhaps into the crystal in its photonic form. Superman thanks Batman for safeguarding the fortress and wonders if the crystal will hold Dr. Light. Well, somewhere else, Dr. Light is pulled out of the darkness by somebody in the silhouette form. Light asks what they want from him, and the stranger says that doctor is the real question. And we're told to check out current issues of the JLA for what Dr. Light is up to. Let's do some page-by-page, kids. Yes, that was the whole synopsis. That's that's all that happened in that issue. (laughs) On page one, it's good to see the Titans in their old-school form. It's a nice, nostalgic throwback. But in page two and three, was this... I mean, when you look at the space station, is that an intentional Halo homage? Or was that just a happenstance? On page four, does John Henry Irons know that Bruce is actually his partner, Superman. After all, Steel did figure out that Superman and Clark Kent were the same person before Clark ever even meant to, mentioned it to him. And then, uh, moving on to page six, Steel is ready to fight, saving Sans armor. I think that's awesome. I'm a big fan of Steel. I'm looking forward to when he comes into the picture next season, actually, next in season three, um, when we are covering New Krypton. And he'll be a relatively big part of that. Although one of my big complaints is consistency of characters, and John Henry plays into that. So earmark that particular comment, or go ahead and forget about it, because I'll just make the point then. (laughs) Um, Anyway, page uh, 13. Nice cutaway to Dr. Light sneaking towards the crystal. This entire sequence, it's page 7 to 13, I should be more accurate. The whole sequence where he's, as Linders, is moving towards it while Superman is fighting... um, very cinematic. Very well laid out. I'm very happy with that. And on page 19, Batman punching light. Good posing, really. I mean, it's a it's a dynamic image. And, I mean, that's another good piece. Page 20 and 21, chafe grenades to vex Dr. Light. That's boss. That's Batman. That's hardcore. And page 23, Dr. Light enveloped in darkness with only Batman for the win, ladies and gentlemen. That was awesome. That's a great way to really just scare the pee out of Dr. Light. And uh, page 24 and 25, here is a, a little bit of an annoyance. The red lighting color effect that's happening on the bridge of the ship, it gets old by the time this issue you know, gets to it. On panel 1, on page 24, it features a regular coloring, because I guess they're not in the control area, they move out into a hallway and then back in. That coloring made me feel like I was breathing fresh air. It felt like the red coloring was taking away my breath, not in a good way. It felt confined, and I guess maybe that's just me. If you agree, let me know. Mail at supermanforever.com. And page 27, another little gripe. The fortress looks a little odd. Um, kind of like a crystal teepee. And the crystal is actually supposed to be misshapen, a little odd. But I can live with it. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. And I like Mike McCone. As for what is happening in Justice League, that, as I've mentioned on Elsewhere in the DC Universe, that is the Injustice League forming. That is Lex Luthor recruiting Dr. Light, for the record. Now, in terms of what happened to Becca, I kind of gave you a little bit, but I don't have the specifics right now. 
it does get revealed down the line. And uh, overall, you know, as far as this issue goes, it, it was good. It was meh. You know, it was okay. The, uh, the entire plot was point A to point B. It could have been a setup for an issue, but doesn't really constitute a full issue on its own. The concept was, and pardon me, pardon the pun, solid. It was a good idea. It's fun. But I'd rather have seen the a little bit of use, you know, see Dr. Light use the weapons and battle our heroes instead of it's merely an issue that we is just lacking. It was a good setup, but didn't follow through. And I guess it's a good palate cleanser between story arcs, but it just doesn't cut it on its own. And I'll give this issue a quarter bin rating, which seems to be the theme. Might as well call this issue quarter bin, simply because I like McCone and the classic Titans, or else it would have been leave it on the shelf. Uh, this is just how I roll. And how about we look at, uh, that's pretty much all the books with, you know, with all the editing I've done. Um, I'll, of course, wrap everything up two episodes from now. But uh, let's go ahead and play a promo and then come back and do some Superman the Animated Series and wrap up Season 1. What do you think? Hey, kids, comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. Short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comments. We read comics, that's true, that's good. Liking it, liking this pitch, carry on. Right, we talk about comics. We do, we talk about comics, we read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent, keep going. And then... We sing! Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Hey, kids, comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. And in our episode-by-episode coverage of Superman the Animated Series, we are brought to the season finale, episode 13 of the first season, which is Two's a Crowd, which originally aired on February 15, 1997, written by Stan Berkowitz, directed by Hiroki Oyama. Let me try that again. Hiroki Oyama. Okay, I'm not a linguist. But it stars Tim Daly as Superman slash Clark Kent, Victor Brandt as Professor Hamilton, Joanna Cassidy as Maggie Sawyer, Brian James as Rudy Jones, the Parasite, and Brian Cox as Earl, Dr. Earl Garver. And the episode opens outside of a stately home of Earl Garver, where Metropolis police have gathered, including Maggie Sawyer, who is joined by Professor Hamilton. Maggie anxiously clutches her phone, waiting for an answer from within. And when the answer comes, Garver tells her he is not coming out of the house, and Professor Hamilton tries to reason with him, but it's just no good. Dan Turpin is told to mobilize, which he's more than happy to do, ordering his men in full SWAT gear to move in, and they start with a motorized battering ram towards the door. When it hits the door, however, it does next to nothing, since there are two giant iron doors behind it, blocking its way. Maggie thinks, oh, he must have the whole place reinforced. Turpin decides that there is only one way to find out. Turpin and his, and his squad go, on, go in on foot to try blasting at the house, 
but gun turrets begin blasting back, forcing the police to fall back and injuring Turpin. Maggie hears a familiar whooshing, and Superman lands on the scene. Maggie gives Superman the situation. The man inside is Earl Garver, who used to work at Star Labs until he stole a radioactive isotope, which he is planning on using to, well, has used to build a bomb, which he is planning on blowing up the city, unless the city pays him by that night. So he's holding all of Metropolis for ransom. Superman tries his luck at the house, smashing the iron door and making his way inside to find the walls of the foyer are electrified, a problem solved by throwing a wooden furniture through it. Further in, Superman sees Garver on the floor above, thanks to his x-ray vision, but doesn't get a long look before another turret mounted on the fireplace begins to blast him. I have a turret on my mount on my fireplace, don't you? Superman takes care of the turret and comes up through the floor and demands to know where the bomb is. Garver says that it's wherever that wherever it is, it's already ticking, and it's surrounded by lead, so the real question is where is his money? Superman starts for Garver, who pushes a button on his desk, and a section of the ceiling pushes down on Superman on the end of a mechanized arm. Superman resists, breaking the mechanism and a tube flies out and knocks Garver out in the process. The scene switches to a hospital where a nurse informs Superman, Sawyer and Hamilton, that Garver has a severe concussion and will be unconscious for the next day or so, which is a bit awkward since the bomb is slated to blow in the next four hours. Superman frets that even he couldn't search the city in that time. Hamilton has an idea. He knows somebody who may be able to tell them exactly where the bomb is. At Strikers Island, Hamilton leads Sawyer and Superman to the cell of the Parasite. Parasite wants to know why he should help them. They put him there, after all, and what's in it for him? If he's to help, he wants one thing in return. A TV with cable, including the premium channels. So the Parasite is wheeled into the hospital room and places his hand on Garver's head, beginning the transfer, but something goes wrong. Parasite begins to scream out in pain and Superman breaks the connection immediately, leaving the parasite stunned. Maggie asks Rudy if he's okay, does he know where the bomb is, and Garver's voice says that he knows right where it is, but they'll still have to pay. Earl Garver has taken over the parasite. Superman points out that Garver is still trapped there, and he doesn't even know what hospital he's in. If the bomb goes off, both he and the parasite are toast. Within the parasite, Rudy also tries to tell Garver that he's up the creek and to cooperate with them. Garver elects not to, and in the harbor, pardon me, Garver actually decides okay, and in the harbor, Superman and Sawyer dive down to a shipwreck where he's told them that the bomb is. Superman's x-ray vision doesn't spot the bomb in the shipwreck, meaning they'll have to go in the actual ship itself, which is on, on unstable ground. Back at the hospital... Garver struggles to free the Parasite's body, and inside the Parasite's head, Garver tries to persuade Rudy to help him. He offers to help the Parasite retain the power that he takes forever. Rudy is convinced, and together they're able to break the bonding on his hand and call in a security guard who, uh, who gets absorbed as soon as he gets in the room, so the Parasite now has strength and is able to get free. Back in the shipwreck, Superman and Sawyer realize that the bomb isn't there and that Garver was buying time. They start to leave, but the unstable wreckage begins to move along the floor, shifting, and the ship's cargo moves and shifts, trapping Superman and bursting the helmet of his scuba suit slash action figure tie-in. Yes, you can actually buy that action figure. As the ship sinks into the mud of the floor, of the uh, sea floor, the cabin is filled with wet earth, lots of mud, 
and Maggie is also trapped under the debris in the cargo. Superman gets her out and flies them both back to the surface and straight back to the hospital to find that Parasite and Garver are both gone, leaving only disoriented nurses and orderlies in their wake. So Superman and Sawyer wait for hos- at the hospital for Garver to call, and when he does, Garver clarifies his request for payment, adding the stipulation that he wants Superman to bring it to him and to come alone. With only 20 minutes left before the bomb detonates, Superman has no choice but to agree, and Garver orders Superman to come to an old subway extension that was under construction, but the construction ceased, and the walls are all covered in lead. Over the loudspeaker, Garver guides Superman to a pit, the reason why they stopped construction on the extension, and the pit is apparently deep enough that even Superman can't see the bottom. To the left of the pit is an exit sign, where Superman leaves the money and finds the bomb beeping away. Garver gives him the code to stop the bomb, and Superman disarms it. The day is saved, but when he does, the parasite's arm reaches up from the ground and absorbs Superman's power. Now armed with some of Superman's strength and Garver's intellect, the two battle in the tunnel, and not seeing any progress in the fight, Parasite slash Garver rearms the bomb. His real body is miles north in an ambulance, so he's safe, and Superman points out that to the Parasite that Garver's ready to betray him at the drop of a hat. So Rudy fights back as Superman tries to punch in the code and finds out that Garver, Garver changed it. Superman throws the bomb into the deep pit, but Parasite comes through a wall and knocks himself and Superman into it. Both hold on to the side of the pit, weakened by their fight and partially absorbed power on the Parasite's part, and the massive explosion rips through the tunnel, but when the smoke clears, Superman rises from the rubble and finds the Parasite back to normal. Garver, however, awakens in an ambulance and is shocked to see that he is flying over the city carried by Superman, who is delivered to Stryker's Island. Garver is taken into custody and asks Sawyer and Superman lead him down the hall. The Parasite's laughter echoes as he watches his big screen TV and his cable. The end. Now here's a neat piece of information. Earl Garver, as I mentioned, is put into Stryker's Island at the end of this episode. He was voiced by Brian Cox, who actually has a comic pedigree of his own. He played Stryker in X2 X-Men United. And just for the note, he was the original Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter, the original adaptation of Red Dragon. So that was just a neat random fact. Overall, good episode. Not great. Not a great ending to the season. Now, had this been placed anywhere else in the season, it would have just been top-notch. But as it stands, the previous episode, Tools of the Trade, served as a much better finale, tying a lot of things together. Now, removing that, removing the sequence it was put out in, taking out the fact it was the last episode of the season, I actually give this episode a grade of 4S Shields out of 5, because we get a great look at the Parasite, which I think we really missed out on in his first appearance. And we also get a great sequence on the boat, with Superman rescuing Sawyer and just bursting out of the water. And that's kind of a, at least a, an inspired action sequence. It actually got my heart ta- uh, racing, even though I knew they were going to, of course, get out. It's a Saturday morning cartoon, people. This episode, I guess overall, it felt like a good throwback to maybe the Bronze Age, or maybe a one-off in the post-crisis era, where the stakes just get, keep getting higher and higher, and the villain... Garver is expertly voiced by an actor who knows how to voice villains. And I'm glad they still make Parasite a bit more of a misguided villain rather than a malicious one. All he wants is Cable, and he finds himself being manipulated by Garver. You almost feel bad for him again. It's an excellent episode, just not the one to go out on. 
And next week, we're going to be starting Season 2 with Blast from the Past Part 1 and Part 2. And I'm excited about that one. So we have now wrapped up our first season of Superman, or Superman the Animated Series. We are almost there, kids. Well, we're on our way. Now, one of the things I want to do with Season 2 is I want to start having guests on to talk Superman. Um, but in order to do this, it turns out I'm contractually bound to start with one guest in particular. Be careful of what you sign. So, ladies and gentlemen, today we have the return of Darkseid, Lord of Apocalypse. Thank you, J. David Weeder. It's been a long time. Yeah, we, we actually haven't talked since the Metropolis trip. Is that what you call it, J. David Weeder? Well, yeah, what, what do you call it? I call it getting yanked off of the stage in the middle of a karaoke performance and being berated in front of a crowd of people. You weren't wearing pants. That was a personal choice. That was a felony. I'm not the one who thought it was a good idea to cosplay as Nort with a chip accessory made from a real squirrel. I, I didn't, you know, go through with it. Because the squirrel bit you when you tried to glue a mask to its face. True, but I got the ring on. Oh, great. Somewhere in Paducah, Kentucky, a squirrel with a Green Lantern power ring is loose, and you're mad because I wasn't wearing pants. Okay. You know what? Fair enough. I'm going to be the bigger man here, Darkseid. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I pulled you off the stage and yelled at you. Are you crying? No. <sighs> you are crying! I have allergies, J. David Weeder. Okay, okay. Are, are we cool? We're cool, J. David Weeder. Excellent. Well, well, why don't you tell the listeners what you've been up to since we last spoke? Yes, yes. I'm glad you asked, J. David Weeder. I've had a very full summer. I saw X-Men First Class 57 times. Really? I mean, I never pegged you as an X-Men fan. J. David Weeder, I empathize with the mutant cause. Being misunderstood is hard. It's a hard burden, and I, I would know. Also, the movie featured Michael Ironside. Crap, I, I should have known. Yes, yes. I also wrapped up my tour and took up a new hobby. Street racing. Street racing? Yes, yes, J. David Weeder. Street racing. Just like in Fast and the Furious. There is nothing, nothing, like the adrenaline rush you receive when hitting 200 miles per hour on a mountain switchback. Your competitor right on your heels, and that competitor is death. Wow, so the black racer was there. You said it, J. David Weeder. Well, sounds like you've had an exciting few months. What's... What's next for you? Well, J. David Weeder, I see things in this country that are wrong. Bank executives grow fat while our children starve. Schools fail. People grow homeless. And something must be done. Okay, well, what do you think needs to be done? We need new leadership, J. David Weeder. Leadership that doesn't adhere to the party line and doesn't play politics. I'm throwing my hat into the ring. For what, Congress? Senate? President, J. David Weeder. What? Yes. I'm using your show to announce my bid 
for the office of President of the United States of America. You're kidding! No, no, J. David Weider. I'm going to take this country back. You, you have to be a natural-born citizen of the United States. Yes. You were born on Apocalypse. I was born in Delaware. You were not! Yes, yes, Delaware, Apocalypse. It's, it's a bit of an annex. It was uh, an area that wasn't incorporated until the mid-80s into the United States proper. Uh, it was unincorporated at that point. Wait. So, explain this to me. There was an uh-huh. area yes. of Apocalypse yes. that was part of Delaware? Delaware? Yes. It was a town called Ben. Ben, Delaware. And that was the result of, of kind of a, a faulty property survey. Ben, Delaware. Yes, J. David Weider. I have checked my qualifications, and I have filled out the proper paperwork. I am now officially a candidate for president. And to the listeners of Superman Forever Radio, I plan on being a leader that you can respect. In fact, I will be a leader that you must respect. I will bring dignity and a firm hand back to the Oval Office. So firm that in my first week as Commander-in-Chief, my first act will be to make the Oval Office the perfectly round office. Things need to change. This was made clear in the last election. But change to what? I'm sorry, are you you actually asking me? No, I was pausing for dramatic effect. I seem to have paused too long. Yes. Yes. Let me try that again. But change to what? A new power. What? Yes, obedience. J. David Weider, the country has been too friendly for too long. It's time to restart the Cold War and create some jobs there. Plus, there's always jobs in the fire pits of Apocalypse and in the torture chambers of Desaad. On another planet? Mock it. Mock it, J. David Weider. Do you see any other solutions? Plus, I can solve the debt crisis. You can single-handedly solve the debt crisis. Yes. Through military budget cuts, I can provide apocalyptium weapons and parademon troops at no cost to the country. Isn't that disrespectful to the soldiers? No, J. David Weaver. They will always have a place of honor. They will be the first to benefit from my job program. You know, you're going somewhere scary. What's scary is a failing economy and a failing educational system. We must educate the children better. And I have a bad feeling you have a plan for that, too. Yes, yes, Granny Goodness will be Secretary of Education. She has some experience, as you may know. Oh, you're really serious, aren't you? You're really running for president. Yes, J. David Weaver. I am running for president. Remember November 2012. Vote Darkside. We'll take this country back by force. Okay, well... Thanks for for being here. You can't stifle me, J. David Weider. They're doing great things with the Skype disconnect button. Okay, and uh, what I'm going to do is just pretend that that never even happened and move on. Um, That's pretty much almost the end of the show. One before I go, I do have a voicemail to play. Hey, David, this is Adam Stabelli here. I was just wondering what you thought of the DC retroactive line of comic books, specifically the Superman Superman books. Okay, thanks, David. I hope you... And I hope you play this voicemail on the podcast. Thanks. 
Thanks, Adam. Yeah, I actually just read those, and I thought the 70s was a lot of fun, but not entirely satisfying. The 80s was a real letdown for me. It just felt like it was a story where they kind of played with right before the, the, the crisis happened. And I just thought I didn't, uh, you know, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow really kind of take care of that. And uh, I thought the 90s was the best of the three. I thought the 90s was fun. It fit in. I really enjoyed the 90s. And uh, I'm curious because it looks like uh, from what I read, and I haven't cracked out the issues that would be roughly surrounding it, but it was pretty well integrated into what was happening on the books at that time. So it was exciting, and I always love Gail Simone. I love me some John Bogdanovi. And, uh, yeah, I thought overall the 90s was really good. The other two were, eh, okay. But I appreciate your your voicemail, Adam, and, you know, everybody is welcome. And uh, what I will do is, of course, there's a canned closing that will have the voicemail number. Feel free to leave your, your voicemail. And, of course, next week, or not next week, next episode, all new changes, Justice League number one, Action Comics number one, Superman number one, Supergirl number one, Superboy number one, Teen Titans number one. It's a bunch of number ones. So I will see you there, as, and we also look at the uh, November 2000, 2001, 91. I'm not going to go through the list. You get the idea. So exciting new episode. I'm really excited. I cannot wait to get started on this. So I am J. David Weeder. I'm your mild-mannered host. Until next time, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. You can find Superman Forever Radio at supermanforever.com and on iTunes where you can leave a review. Superman Forever Radio is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, where you can find Superman podcasts from all eras of the Man of Steel, and it is located at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, and there are several ways to contact the show. Drop me an email. The address is mail at supermanforever.com, or follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash supermanforever. That is Superman, the number four, ever. Also, the show is on Facebook. Simply go to facebook.com forward slash Superman Forever Radio, and you can use the like button to follow that way. And finally, you can leave a voicemail for the show at 703-95-SUPER. Please keep the messages short and do not include personal information like phone numbers, etc., as these will be played on air. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademarks of DC Comics, a Warner Brothers Entertainment Company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment.